Hello listeners, before we get started with today's episode, I'd just like to say that my microphone had a few issues, uh, therefore when I speak a bit loudly you can kind of hear it crackling. I believe it fixes in later episodes and this is the only one, but I might have been just a bit too close to it, I'm not quite sure. Uh, but I've tried to adjust the audio best I can, but I just wanted to know I'm aware of it. Anyway, enjoy the episode. <laughs> Hello, welcome to Christmas Actually with Luke Allen and Lara Collier, the podcast that takes a look at the Richard Curtis film Love Actually, one day at a time. It's Tuesday the 8th of December, actually. I'm one of your hosts, Luke Allen. I'm joined, as always, with my co-host, Lara Collier. Yo. And two special guests today. I'm joined with Andy Kind. Hi, Luke. And with Susan Hill. Hi, and December 8th today is actually my birthday. Oh, wow. Happy birthday for what is basically two months from now. (laughs) (laughs) But all our listeners who are listening live can message you on some form of social media and wish you a happy birthday um all, all three of them uh so today we are t- obviously tackling uh love actually once again and we're opening with andrew lincoln being phoned up by kira knightley and finishing with hugh grant dancing so it's a it's a fun week woot woot. so before we get into the minutes what are both of your experience with love actually as a film well it's a film that, um, for me, it's it's the classic Marmite film, isn't it? But I think actually, I, I think that that can be what you with actual Marmite. What you tend not to have happen is somebody goes from loving Marmite to hating Marmite. You either do like the taste or you don't. But my um, relationship with Love actually is that at different points over the last twenty years, I have loved it, and at different points, I've hated it. And I, I it's so. My feelings about it are so ambiguous. If I could be in a relationship with Love Actually on Facebook, I'd have to say it's complicated. <laughs> I I completely understand that. Like, I've liked it, but over the course of doing this show, I both love it more and dislike it more. And, like, I don't know. Because there's some awful continuity errors we're realising, but also it's just nice. It's a series. Have, have you watched um, The Ballad of Buster Scruggs on Netflix? It's by the, the Coen brothers. That's a series of um, short vignettes set in sort of the Wild West. And some of them are amazing. Some of them aren't great. The thing about Love Actually is that it's a series of short stories, some of which are top class, some of which are uh, less quality, but they're all compounded together. I think that's why you get such a range of views, because there's so much going on in one film. Um, And the quality of those stories are varied um but they're all sort of interwoven together and uh yeah so i think that's probably why you you get people with so many different perspectives on it i've started trying to edit each of the stories into their own separate short films to see how they stand i've only i've only so far done the daniel and sam liam neeson and thomas sangster story 
and that's about 25 minutes long and it's a really solid short film yeah. it stands on its own really well it flow it actually flows better as a short film i think because it doesn't feel like daniel's moving on too early because the pressure of it starting with christmas you've kind of got literally five weeks before christmas he's at his wife's funeral and then at the end he's with claudia schiffer like there's that's 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 five weeks it's yeah. it's very quick but as a as a short film that those those time cards and everything else aren't as present so it's a lot easier to take in i think in that way um what about you sue what's your experience i had i saw of love actually for the first time uh on christmas day at my parents my brother had come up from toronto to uh, spend christmas day with us and i had never seen it i'd of course heard of it um and watching it with my parents made uh some of the scenes very uncomfortable mm-hmm. <laughs> and i think yeah. maybe that's why i didn't particularly like it the first time i was just like cringing the entire time um, but I watched it again this morning, and I just grinned my way through most of it. I, I thought it was great. And I think the Liam Neeson story is, is one of my favorites out of all the vignettes that are in it. Yeah, I think I think that's definitely the case. And like we had a little chat with Richard for two minutes about time, and hopefully we'll have him for Christmas, actually, about this. And basically, he just had loads of different ideas, and he just didn't want to do 100 minutes for each of them. And he was like, well, let's just bung them all together. And... Whilst he said this wasn't the intention, it feels quite satirical at the rom-com genre at times. Like, when you start looking at how he treats the certain tropes, and when you see sort of how, as as we'll, we we get a bit of his story here, the Andrew Lincoln and Kira Knightley story, how you're rooting for Andrew Lincoln, who basically is yeah. a creep. <laughs> and in the same sense with um, Chris Marshall's character, we've said several times on the show, if Sean William Scott was reading his lines, it'd be a very different yeah. film. <laughs> And yet, he's quite charming when really he's the guy you'd hate in every sex yeah. comedy. It's quite a weird sort of way that he... When we analyse it like this, it really feels like Richard Curtis is trying to like tear apart the rom-com genre. And I think, yeah, imagine Toby Jones in the Andrew Lincoln role. It's <laughs> mm. a very different film. Yeah. Mm. One of the great things about doing the vignette format is, though, that you the the cast is just stellar. There are mm. so many famous faces in this movie that you wouldn't be able to do in a regular rom com, but because you've got so many little stories going on, you can have Liam Neeson in one story and Alan Rickman in another, and it's just like it's amazing. So we open today's episode with uh, Andrew Lincoln playing Mark in the art gallery, um, and he's on the phone to Peter. And of course, there are very intriguing and odd art, per se. There, there's deleted scene um, that features a lot more of this art, and it's a lot more obscene than what we see here. So this is the tasteful side. There's a lot, a lot of breasts in this movie. Yeah, it's quite, <laughs> it's quite strange for a Christmas classic to kind of be so... And you forget about it every time. Every time I put this on, there's at least one moment of nudity that I think, I forgot this was happening, I think now I'm here. I think because the nudity and the sex traumatized me with my parents the first time around that it sticks out in my mind quite a bit. <laughs> so we've got this this whole scene. And apparently each of the pictures are to represent an, uh, a Christmas pun. So the main one we see was supposed to be the four tops, which are the, the four naked men with the microphones and Santa hats. Um, I hadn't had the chance to actually figure out what the other ones are supposed to be, but that was a note I made from the commentary. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out what um, the one behind him would be with the, the hats on the nipple. <laughs> yeah. What I think is really interesting, I think this this scene 
sort of sums up my feelings about the film as a whole. Um, this wouldn't be the, the, the one scene that I'd choose to summarise this, but it's it's not... You know, you can... I heard somebody describe Love Actually as um, charmingly gratuitous. And, and I, I don't... I actually think that at times it's deeply charming and at other times it's it's deeply gratuitous. Um, and so it's not charmingly gratuitous or touchingly crass. It's touching at times and crass at others, charming at times and gratuitous of other, at others. I think that's the thing that that turns me off. I think I'll, during those periods where I think I just don't like that film, it's just that there's this quite stark contrast in tone and that it does seem like you've got the you've got the beat and the offbeat playing simultaneously, like a you know an indie band and a ska band trying to play the same tune at the same time. And while that's experimentally charming, it's also not good music. So that's how I feel about it. But what you also notice on a lighter note is just how attractive Andrew Lincoln was. <laughs> I mean, as a heterosexual man, as soon as he came on screen, I thought, oh my goodness me, he was absolutely gorgeous. Um, yeah, to go, to go back to like the first point you were making about the different um, the different tones, it also stands out a lot on Richard Curtis' filmography. I think, like Bridget Jones, has that crassness to it, I guess. But like to compare it to Four Weddings or Notting Hill or even stuff like Blackadder, it it it's not. It's weird to think it's the same guy, really, because he's he kind of he doesn't have that crassness or a ton of like nudity and things in his films. There's there's moments, things like about time are just lovely and sweet, and I can talk about time for hours, so I won't. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's like the girl in the cafe. It was a, like a wonderfully touching romance that didn't really have much sex or bad language or anything. That this does definitely kind of stand out, and I think the gratuitous nature of obviously the main thing that features it is the Martin Freeman and Joanna Page story. And obviously there is comedy in that gratuitous nature of it and how they're so comfortable to do this at work, but when it's their own personal life, there's the struggle for intimacy and um, shyness there, which I kind of, whilst I don't like much of their story, if we had more of it, I think it would have felt like it fitted in a bit better. Yeah, and that's all I mean by like, gratuitous. I don't I don't mean in a Mary Whitehouse yeah. sense of being a, a, a prude or a moralist, you know, art can can do whatever it needs to do so you know nudity within film i have absolutely zero problem with gratuity gratuitousness is simply as you just said it's that stuff that that isn't needed and that doesn't fit in within the context and i think there's just i think there's just moments um there's moments like that isn't there well the only like the chris marshall story and the um the story with martin freeman and joanna page their connection to each other is the only thing that's holding them into mm. the film, really. Their connection with, um, I've already forgotten his name, Colin's friend, uh, who's the AD. Like, that, that relationship, they ha they're, they're the two weakest stories, and they rely upon one another to fit within the film. You could cut them both out and still have a mm. fine film. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, I kind of want to know if there was a lot more, I haven't had the chance to read through the original script online yet, but I want to know if there was more that goes into their their stories but this bit we get here um with mark and juliet in a moment it's 
it's quite weird because when you do get to those certain scenes with Mark and Juliet, you do find yourself sort of relating with Mark. And then you look at what actually is happening and you go back at the wedding scene where you've got him with the video camera and everything. And it's just disturbing. He's going all sort of American beauty on him. Yeah, really. <laughs> yeah I mean... He's... I think if we don't get to know her husband, we don't get to, to know... Uh... Yeah. Uh, Chuatel Edgy for I think is how you pronounce his name. Uh, we don't really get to know him, so we, we don't have a rooting interest in him. Mm. I think what we needed, I think I mentioned this before, is if we had like some sort of backstory or some moment where maybe if Mark was in love with Juliet from before she got with Peter, like if there was maybe they were all they all went to school together or something, and and he invited Mark. Uh, sorry, Mark invited Peter to a party or something where he was he was planning to ask Julia out and then she fell for Peter or something where you saw that the interest, he was in love with her before it got kind of Yeah, it would make it look weird easy. And creepy. Yeah. Yeah. And you'd kind of root for him a little better because you'd, you'd know that he'd been in love with her for a while. But at the moment, it's just a guy who's trying to have a, lead, <laughs> take a married woman mm. out of her marriage and it just doesn't quite work but i think andrew lincoln's performance is probably as you said like if you had toby jones or someone like his performance does make it like i tear up almost every time i watch that scene where he's after he's after she's seen the video of the wedding when he's walking out and he keeps turning back and circling to see whether he goes back in i think that's such a powerful scene he's so, he doesn't know what to so do what good to in say. that He's like, mm. before, like you've, we've all been there. Like, you know, like I, reg- I should go back. No, I can't, but I should, but I can't, you know, as yeah. Heart wrenching. And of, obviously Kira Knightley's performance is amazing, especially considering she was only 18 when they filmed this. Wow. There's a lot of she was for your thing. Like she's great in this. Wow. She's so young. <laughs> she was five years older than Thomas Sangster who plays Sam. Wow. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, what do you think of this whole overall exchange that we get here in the uh, in the art gallery? It's uncomfortable, and it's supposed to be. And yeah. you, you're like, no, you know immediately that there's something on that video that she should not see. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think actually Andrew Lincoln is able to do something that maybe the film itself doesn't do, which is to hold together those two quite extreme things. You know, he. He, he's able to humanise um, and and make it seem credible. He's able to humanise the kind of the reality of, of stalkerism, if, if you like. Um, you know, he, his character is essentially the, um, the acting version of um, I'll Be Watching You by the police. You know, that kind of, you know, got Sting singing about being a stalker. Um, but because he does it so melodiously, people people are, you know, bought into it so yeah i think andrew lincoln is an, an astonishing actor in that role in that you actually have to be told you actually have to sit back and think oh but hang on he's trying to he's just trying to break up a marriage this is not love this is infatuation and obsession actually um and yeah. and yet well, that's today's episode. Yeah, title. infatuation actually, <laughs> and yet when he walks away at the end, as he's done the you know the card thing, which is how I start. Um, I've always started every date, you know, every blind date. I always start with the card thing from Love Actually. Um, as he's walking, <laughs> as he's walking away, and he says, "Enough, enough now." 
you think, okay, so there's even redemption possible for that for that guy. And yeah, he's my favourite character in the film, and yet I actually hate I hate mm. what he does. But I think he is trying deep down to to bury it. Yes, like he doesn't want to break up their marriage, and he's he's distancing because she's she says in a later scene like I, I feel like you don't like me, like we're not friends. But I think he's trying his desperately to keep a distance between them because maybe he doesn't trust himself or he doesn't want to break up his best friend's marriage. Yeah, well, it is that is that really awkward balance of you don't want them to know that you have feelings for them. So you can't talk to them too much and you can't talk to them too little. And it, yeah, you can see that he's really sort of struggling with that balance. So I, I guess, yeah, he's kind of hung on to his relationship with, with Peter and just allowed... <laughs> allowed him to just be peter's friend and not really any friend to to juliet Um, i think he just doesn't trust himself like he knows that he loves her and he's just like i can't talk to you because i'm just gonna blurt out that i love you so do you think if we saw more of peter's life and his story this would be a harder story to see yeah i don't think we have a rooting interest for peter at all he's just someone else in the frame almost at times it is quite weird what this film seems to do with the concept of infidelity really because in the same way with alan rickman and Emma thompson's story you don't want him to do it but you feel for alan rickman the entire journey i think you feel bad for every mistake he makes because you see what's coming before he does it's quite a brave move that richard curtis does really to portray things not in a black and white light but actually sort of show the motivation of someone who would do something like that well, it's it's rare in those kind of situations that you could take either side and not be wrong. Yeah. That, you know, like, cause I feel for Emma Thompson because, I mean, she's so distraught uh, at times. Um, but, like, I also, like, <laughs> I feel also Alan Rickman's a little bit oblivious. He's got this woman dressed in a devil costume coming onto him. He's just like, doop de doop de doop <laughs> But. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Lara, what do you get out of this, this scene? Um, yeah, not much, to be honest. <laughs> Um, mostly just like what you guys have been like saying, but I, I don't really get much out of the scene. Like, yeah, it is a big old scene of exposition, really. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it is. It's kind of weird to think we're nearly halfway through this show and we're still at like the start of the film. <laughs> we're still at the exhibitiony bit because in going day by day, half an hour of the film takes place on Christmas Eve. So, like, we've got a long episode then. What? I'm gonna die. <laughs> We've got so many characters to introduce as well. Oh, that takes time. Sugar. Yeah. I said sugar. I'm so relieved that I've got this transcript because I wouldn't know these characters' names. <laughs> I've just copied and pasted a transcript off the internet and written my notes and annotations on the transcript, so then I can just sound like I know what I'm talking about when I really don't. Yeah, I have the characters um, list up on IMDb. <laughs> um, so. In fact, I think I discussed this IMDb correction um, is that in the wedding scene earlier on, it's uh, Richard Curtis is credited for being a trombone player. He does not appear in this film. Richard at no point filmed a scene. So someone added that as a false thing. But his partner, Emma Freud, you do see her hand and legs at the start and she's not credited. So I need to fix that. That would have been in the wedding scene. Um, Richard Curtis was was credited as the trombone person in the, in the, the wedding, scene. wedding scene and yeah. in the, one of the opening mo- montages when you've got someone carrying a Christmas tree that's his partner Emma 
and she's not got a credit on IMDb for it, but I might fix that. This is the sort of big scoops you get when you listen to two minutes <laughs> about time. <laughs> the show's already finished, but there's a lot of episodes, so they can all listen to that. The show will be finished by now, because at time of recording, it finishes in a week and a half. So, um, Have we got any further notes on this scene before we go straight to Harry and Sarah? Nope. I just agree with Andy that uh, that Mr. Lincoln is very nice to look at. Yeah. Very true. Yep. Lovely eyes. <laughs> I've realised one scene in, uh, because of how messed up the structure of this show is, that I didn't ask either of you to introduce who you are. <laughs> so <laughs> we'll do that now. We'll do that now. Uh, so, Andy, briefly, who I are am you? A, I am a, a less handsome version of Andrew Lincoln. And I am, uh, I am a, a com- I am a comedian, writer, preacher. Yeah, lots of things. Uh, I'm Sue or Susan, and uh, I live in Montreal, Canada. And uh, I met Luke quite by happenstance, and here I am. <laughs> uh, one one fun fact: I'm fluent in French, so when we get to the French part in a little bit, I can tell you that Colin First's French is terrible. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, I think we got in touch through, was it the Move My Minutes convention that you said something about like wanting to guest on some shows and I was like, ah, yeah, we need guests. Yeah. I had I guessed once before in a, in a Move My Minute on Flash Gordon Minute, which everyone should listen to, um, just because um, I was a fan of the show and then everywhere I went, I said, you should listen to Flash Gordon Minute, it's great. So they're like, let's have you on. I'm like, great, perfect. I love it. <laughs> yeah. And we just like guests. We need guests, especially for a show like this where it's two guests at a time. Mm. Anyone who schedules matches is just lovely. <laughs> well, <laughs> I started I started the show by all oh, which guests would get on well with each other and then I ended up at this point just being Are you available on Monday? Time. Yes. Oh, so <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the time just um, is a little bit of a struggle, but apart from that. <laughs> um so we've then got Harry and Sarah where Harry is asking if there's any progress with our matchmaking plans. And I believe at this point we still haven't seen that Harry is married. So I'm wondering whether, for first-time viewers, there is any suggestion that maybe there'd be a relationship blossoming between Harry and Sarah, as she as he's trying to matchmake her and then they fall for each other or something simple and sweet like that. Um, I sort of feel this morning that was almost like a first view for me because I really didn't remember most of this movie. But um, I didn't get that. I thought there was something between uh, Mia and Harry. Uh, yeah. But I thought he was just being a friend to uh, yeah. to her. I, I didn't feel like there was anything between them. Yeah. That makes sense. And I think it's quite nice that we see Mia hitting on Harry before we find out that he's married. Because there's part of the audience who's rooting for the Harry-Mia relationship just as a result of that. That when we find out that he's married, it kind of... It kind of stops us from instantly hating him. He seems right off the top as sort of the, like, he must be single because he's so awkward. Yeah. You discover he's married with kids and you're like, oh, I didn't see that coming. And of course, I don't think we see them this episode, but Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson have an amazing on-screen chemistry, I think. Because they've worked together so many times. Yeah. Agreed. So we got this... um, this exchange where he's asking about their matchmaking plans and uh so already sarah gets like a phone call during this so i guess this is this is still continuing the the foreshadowing of how 
her relationship is with her brother. Mm. Which I it's it's a part of the film once again that I forget a lot. Is this little uh, that the whole bit with Sarah and her brother and their relationship, which seems such a significant part of the film. But it's it, I think the lovely thing, as we said about this sort of anthology kind of film, is you always forget something whenever you watch it. Like there's all there's always something, or I think even if you knew everyone's stories inside out, you won't remember what order that each scene appears. There's something. It'd be so hard to memorize a film like this. There's so many details as well. Okay, mm-hmm. because I remember like it, the first time that she walks into Alan Rickman's office, he says, "Turn off your phone," and we we. I don't I, like. I didn't know why he would say that. It sounds so normal today because phones are such an ubiquitous uh, uh, part of our lives. But like in this movie, there are very few mobile phones. So it seemed weird when she walked into his office. She's, she's the first thing he says is turn off your mobile phone. But then we learn we learn later why. So it's a little seed there that her mobile phone is a problem. Yeah, you're right about the mobile phone comment actually. Because this is 2003. Yeah. Um, I hadn't realized that, but in defense, this film was a year before I was born. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and Lara. <laughs> so, yeah, I uh, I do be young. <laughs> so I could be your mother. It's fine. <laughs> um, so we have this as always this lovely exchange, and it is it is very brief because then her mobile goes. She speaks to who we assume is her brother, but but at this point with the photograph on the desk and everything else, we could assume it's a husband. I had no idea who she was talking to. I really didn't. I didn't, because like, when you first watch, you're just trying to figure out what all the stories are. And I had no idea who she was talking to. Well, it's, it's, honestly, it's only now I'm noticing the photograph on the desk because mm-hmm. I've got the, the minute, op- not the minute, the scene open in front of me. Well, and then we cut. The details are why I don't understand why. I know a lot of people who only watch a movie once and never watch them again. And I don't understand those people because Literally. the first time through a movie, you try and follow all this, all the different storylines and who's who, mm. what characters, what, and then the second view and third view, you see all those little details, like the photo on the phone and that the photo on the desk and that kind of thing. Five. Well, yeah, there are some films which, like the first time I watched them, I didn't like, or I didn't really go for. But I, I, I I've started realizing with some films that don't quite work for me first time that I kind of come out of it thinking I didn't enjoy that, but I know I'm going to enjoy it when I watch it next time. Mm. Right. When I've not got to worry about following the plot and I can actually focus on the characters and the story and uh, in, in a smaller detail, it's better. Even About Time, I didn't love it when I first saw it. It was just an all right film and now it's my favourite yeah, film. Yeah, I had to watch Apocalypse Now five or six times before I decided I really liked it. <laughs> I don't think I've ever got all the way through well, it. Well, no. <laughs> I don't think I even started it. <laughs> wait till you watch it in your, you know, in your late 30s and then you'll get it, Luke. Okay, I'll I'll make note of that. But same same thing even with things like The Godfather. Like I watched that for the first time for a podcast um for an episode of my show Please Be Seated about uh ooh, about 9 months ago and like it was fine, but I came out of it going I know I'm going to enjoy it more next time when I'm not trying to remember characters names and figure everything else out. I I realized that I could just enjoy it and I'm looking forward to watching it again, especially after doing the podcast on it when our guest loved it and he told me like every little detail he liked. I have to agree with Andy, though, that there's some movies that you see when you're younger and then you see them again when you're later in life and more settled. And sometimes you have kids, sometimes you don't, whatever. But uh, like, the movies will, will speak to you on a different level at different parts of your life. Yeah, definitely. I think that. I mean, there there are some films specifically which I've... Um... 
or different TV shows and stuff I've watched where like I'm fans of them on these like fan pages and stuff and it's like when did you first watch this show and someone said oh I started watching it when I was 10 and it was like I think you've just ruined it for yourself (laughs) (laughs) there is no way you can understand the emotion and the story that that these people are experiencing like the reason I enjoy it is because I know people like these people (laughs) like um so I, I don't get like yeah definitely with some films you watch them at a younger age and it just doesn't work at all yeah i think so i think your your frame of your framework for living and your um the parameters your of your existence change and widen don't they and i think you just um you're just able to sympathize and empathize with characters in 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 a different way and um yeah which is why i'm not which is why I'm not wanting to watch Donnie Darko again, because I watched it when it first came out and I hated it so much. I'm never going to give it the opportunity to change my mind. <laughs> uh, but then you've got stuff the other way around where, like, I'd imagine there are some films which you can watch and be too Anything old by Steven Seagal. Anything with Steven Seagal in. But there are a lot of, like, I mean, I'm a, I was born in the 70s, so, like, 80s movies are my big movies because they were my childhood. And uh, there's a lot of 80s movies like Flash Gordon or Buckaroo Banzai and that kind of thing that if you didn't see it when you were younger and you watch it now, you just kind of watch the movie and go, what the hell did I just watch? Where I loved it as a child, so I still love as, love it as an adult. I'm a big John Hughes fan. Like, I love the John Hughes teen movies, but I've been reading and watching a lot about like video essays and stuff about the john hughes movies and i'd imagine if i go to watch them like two or three years from now they won't they won't work yeah um, i didn't see them as a when i was younger and if I, I i feel if i watched them now i would i wouldn't get through them and like i've been watching thing about um about john hughes and how he sort of opposes um the stereotypes as to how people should act within high school and so throws them away but then at the end of the film still ends up conforming to these stereotypes and so with that sort of sociological mindset, once again, they're not going to work. No. And I can't remember what my initial point was, so we should probably go back to love, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we then get Harry and Mia. And, oh, Mia is way too forward in these scenes. Like, now we know that Harry's married. At this point, as I said, before, before like, because it, at, in this point in the film, we don't know. I'm pretty sure. We haven't had any scene with Emma Thompson yet, have we, Lara? Uh, I don't believe we have. Yeah, FYI to the listeners, it's been like two weeks since we've recorded, so I can't remember. But I don't think we've had any scenes. Um, so it's uh, so at this point, when you're watching it, it's probably kind of fine. You're seeing her being a bit over-the-top flirty, but you're kind of like, oh, something will blossom here. Yeah. But now you know, in hindsight, that he's married. She is way too forward and inappropriate in his office at this point <laughs> it, it's mind-blowing like this is an hr nightmare <laughs> we can't say that she's just to blame for the whole thing because obviously he has a say but what she's doing here is just not a good way to be or to act there was apparently a deleted scene where she's talking to andrew lincoln in the art gallery saying ah oh, she's feeling a bit bored she might as well have an affair with her boss or something like that, and wow. it's just like that seems a bit weird. <laughs> I believe we, I believe we did see Emma Thompson before, but with Liam Neeson. Yeah. Yes. Because for like half of the movie, I kept expecting Emma Thompson to leave Alan Rickman to be with Liam Neeson. <laughs> <laughs> well, who wouldn't want to be with Liam? Neeson? I, I would. 
I mean, I love Alan Rickman, but Liam Neeson is Liam Neeson. <laughs> well, actually, I'm not going to lie. I think I prefer Alan Rickman only because Severus Snape. I, I prefer, I think, Alan Rickman as an actor. Uh, mm. But if it was just like, who, which one do you want? Uh, I'll take Liam Neeson. Thank you. Oh, fair enough. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think Richard Curtis does do that really well, is he sets up so many false leads at the start of the film. Yes. Like, Mark and Sarah are talking to each other at the wedding, and like, I think if you watch that for the first time, you think, oh, is something going to blossom there? Because you know it's a love film. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Every time you see a male and a female together, it's like, are they going to be a couple? <laughs> That it's it it uses that very well. Um, of course, I've said several times, Richard Curtis has done incredible things with this film, but it does mean he is entirely to blame for those really awful seasonal ensemble cast films like Mother's Day, Valentine's Day, New Year's Eve, and all of, of them that, that kind I, of blend into one. Yeah, this is the kind of movie I generally try to avoid. I'm not huge into rom coms to begin with. Um, but I really did enjoy this one. But those other ones, I no, no, I would rather <laughs> go to the dentist. <laughs> I don't think I. Think there's many American rom coms I like. I like Richard Curtis films and British rom coms with that kind of quirkiness to them. A lot of the American ones just don't quite work as well for me. I the liked American them ones when I was stupid. <laughs> I liked them when I was. I like. I don't want to say when I was little because I guess I technically am still very young, but. I liked them when I was probably like between the ages like ten and twelve. I think those sort of rom coms were quite fun, but now they're often just full of dangerous values, strange forced dialogue, and on-screen chemistry that does not work. Yeah, um, and half the time Will Ferrell. <laughs> yeah, I still don't. Will Ferrell, who seems to have been playing the same age for about 20 years and no one seems to have acknowledged the fact that he's aged. I think both him and Paul Rudd have made a deal with the devil because they have not aged. I think Will Ferrell's aged a bit more than Paul Rudd because there's a couple of films recently that I've seen Will Ferrell in and I'm like, he looks a lot older than he's playing. But I think Paul Rudd actually looks almost younger now than he did 20 years ago. (laughs) And that's just wrong. (laughs) Have we got any other notes on this exchange between Harry and Mia? No, she's very forward. (laughs) <laughs> so lara i know you haven't got a ton of time so it's likely that yeah, you might I've have to gotta go in like five minutes so we'll we might have to carry on without you if that's okay that is completely um, fine with me so i'm gonna give you a very quick overview of what happens for the rest of these scenes okay therefore you can give us your brief insight. Hi, it's Luke from Editing here. You may notice in the next couple of episodes there have been some scheduling issues. It's just been really weird time and surprisingly difficult for our availabilities to all line up. Um, that has been fixed and we're working ways around that. So I'm going to insert Lara's thoughts on each of the scenes as we get to each scene. Uh, should we move on to, to Jamie and yeah. Aurelia? So um, I won't read out the whole exchange because when we have shorter episodes where it's like five minutes, then I do read out the whole exchange. But like that'll take out a lot of the episodes, so I won't do that. <laughs> but I mean, what, what do you think of this entire like Aurelia storyline? I think it's very charming, and um, like like Sue, I'm able to speak French, and so can agree that um, Colin Firth is. Um, just desperately bad but i think that's the charm of it isn't it and um i i do think that this is my favorite this is my favorite of the of the vignettes 
and um, I do think this this is sort of your classic love breaking down barriers thing. Um, or, or I was going to say it's like the classic rom com trope of you know like, like this is a, a classic rom com movie right here. Yeah, but in that in that innocent sense, I mean, if you look at what the film does, and I am a fan of Richard Curtis, I know I've been a bit cynical about aspects of the, of the film, but uh, you know that's because I'm able to judge something creatively without judging it morally, and um, I think that um, if you look at what happens. A lot of barriers do come down. A lot of boundaries do get crossed, but often in a destructive way. And what I like about the film is it is it does show how these things can happen. So um, I don't think it condemns or condones these things, but it does show how relationships can develop and not just how, this is what I'm trying to say, not just how love can tear down barriers or can cross barriers, but how actually... People can cross the wrong boundaries in the name of love. So not only does it break down barriers, it actually crosses. Um, it crosses. What's the word? What's the word I'm looking for? Another word for for, for boundaries. It, it crosses cordons, basically. And um, so you've got the the positive and the destructive sides to love in inverted commas. But this is the most. This is the most charming and. Uh, innocent and ironic of the vignettes. Hmm. We had a, a guest on a few weeks back who said that he thought the least problematic relationship in love actually is Martin Freeman and Joanna oh, Page, yeah. which I guess is kind of true because they are, whatever they're doing for work, they are workmates at an equal level. With equal, because there, some people, I think, have said that they find it problematic that he is. So, well, he, someone described this as instantly wanted to bed her without her being able to understand. But I don't think it's anything to do with wanting to bed her per se. I think it is definitely love rather than sex. Well, I think at the very, very end, I just noticed this when I was watching it. He says he when he when she holds up uh, spoilers for the end of the movie. Um, when she holds up her hand and says that they're engaged. And he says, I, fi- I might finally get a shag. So I don't think their relationship is necessarily sexual outside of the office, so to speak, to that mm. point. Yeah, I wasn't sure if that was just a, a passing joke, but it might genuinely be true that they're actually quite innocent and um, and have a a surprising view of morals compared to what they have to do for a day job. Because he's so, he's so awkward and shy about relationships and Despite what he does clearly for a living. Yeah, I think I think what I like um I think a, a lot of what Richard Curtis does is um incredible, as in non credible. But what I do like is that he said look, you know, if you look at about time, it it doesn't make sense if you actually want to um rationalize it and go at it with, you know, a, a logical microscope. But that's not the point of the film. The point is, to, of, of that film, as you know, to, to create this framework within which you can explore the uh, relationship between a father and son and love and loss and regret and recapturing redemption and all of that. And so, yeah, what, what I like about the, the Love Actually vignettes, even if I don't think they're realistic, I don't think they have to be realistic because they're they're just quite nice thought experiments, aren't they? So what if you had these very 
pleasant, morally upright people who happen to be working in a, a profession where you realistically wouldn't find that sort of person. I think that's what's going on there. I think if he had done as he had said with some of these and just made feature films out of them, that story would have gone in a really interesting way and made quite a... It would have felt very weird for a Richard Curtis movie, admittedly, but it would have it would have had quite an interesting dynamic that you don't get, really. I'm trying to think. The only other film I can think that would be a bit like that but still is different would be um, The Girl Next Door. Right. I don't know if either of you have seen that. Um, no. no. But the interesting thing with the Martin Freeman's uh, Joanna Page story is that they're described as stand-ins, but we've been doing a throwing about whether they actually mean stand-ins or whether they mean body doubles. Because stand-ins would be weird. It'd be like, you know, we need to test the lights, take off your top. Seems a bit odd. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's a tough one, isn't it? Yeah. I think they're sort they're, they're almost a combination of both. Because they are stand-ins at one point. I mean, there's the one point where they're 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 faking sex while fully clothed, and then people are doing it on the crew and all that kind of thing, which is what a stand-in would do. But then they're clearly supposed to be having sex at various points and having conversations during it, which I don't know how that works while you're filming. But anyway, um, and uh, like, and that is a that is a body double. Yeah, no, that's that's what I was thinking. It, it seems very odd, and a lot of people had misunderstood their story to thinking they're adult film stars. Yeah. Um, yes, which makes sense. I, and I've known people who've described them as the porn couple, <laughs> and I've I've had to like explain that's not the intention uh, because I know way too much about every Richard Curtis film. Um, uh-huh. We don't even have Martin Freeman on a page this this episode. Um, so yeah, we've got this this the continuation of, of um, Colin Firth and Aurelia, um, and I do like their story. I do think it, it does go. Interesting place, and it would have been nice to see where it would go with a feature film because it's quite, it's quite a, a quaint, small story, really. Apart from the big grand scene at the end, like you could make quite a low-budget film around that story. You know, a writer in a cottage with his cleaner, and that's. I'd be very like... curious to see in a full-length feature f- film, though, at what point he learns Portuguese. Yes, because in this because that wouldn't it... flow at all. Yeah, he learns it at the very, very end. So you you'd have a whole like probably 90 minutes of them not speaking the same language <laughs> which might be complicated i do quite like the scene we get later on where we find out they're both learning yes different languages and um i don't know if either of you saw the uh, the mini red nose day sequel that was made to love actually a couple of years ago i did not no um so that's just available uh you can find it somewhere on the internet it's called red nose day actually and there's a lovely scene where um, Jamie still hasn't mastered Portuguese and she tells him in Portuguese that she's pregnant and he said oh that's great that's great that's great but can we have potatoes this time I'm getting a bit bored of the veg <laughs> and it's, it's such it's such a good good line and I, oh, I love it um, so I, I recommend Red Nose Day actually most of it is just redoing of the beats from the original film but with the cast older but it's a Red Nose Day special that's fine yeah, I've seen yeah, it for lovely. Doctor Who, for example, but <laughs> not for that one. So it's a nice exchange. Um, so do, do, did either of you actually work out what it was that he was saying in French? Because I've got rough notes, but it was very difficult. Oh, I have to hear it. Google Translate and stuff. I, I, believe it, I believe he says, it's nice to have you here. Or it's nice that you are here. I'd have to hear it again, but uh, I've only heard it uh, once in the movie and then briefly when I watched the, the clip. 
je suis heureux de vous avoir ici. Je suis heureux de vous avoir ici. Oui. Yeah. C'est ça. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to have you here. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 what I see these notes I made literally a couple of weeks ago, so I I'm 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 rediscovering my notes. <laughs> um I attempted to translate his um when he then tries to do Portuguese. Um and I'm not even gonna try and read what he said in Portuguese, but I was apparently Italian and pidgin Spanish. It's also um, Turkish, I think, at some point. Yeah, and so he says, "Good morning, Eusebio. Very good." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and she says, um, "I think she's ten years too young to remember a footballer called Eusebio." And Molto Bueno is Spanish. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so it, it is quite nice, and it's it's a good way of introducing the language barrier. It's not, you know, they they introduce it straight up in a sort of nice comic way. Um, and, and then, yet yeah, in Turkish, he says, "With great pleasure." <laughs> he's clearly not good with languages which is is quite funny for a writer um yeah. he's generally good with the, with languages um yeah. and then at the end um his portuguese is decent you can get it he can get he gets his point across but it's not great because <laughs> even like cause even in the subtitles you could see you could see that he's made a lot of grammatical mistakes yeah she then does english which is good too What I'm really annoyed by is that this export of Love Actually that I'm sending out to the guests doesn't have the subtitle file on it. So when we get to those scenes, if the guests haven't seen it, they're not going to know at all what's being said. Oh, no. Um, I'm going to have to figure that out. I might have to specifically advise those guests to find the scene elsewhere. Yeah, because I watched it on on Netflix. I always have the subtitles on because I find I I learn so much about what's going on in the background when the subtitles are on. Yeah, I like. I always watch stuff with the subtitles on. I recently bought the uh, the DVD of Richard Curtis's Christmas film Bernard and the Genie that aired on BBC One like once in 1991. Um, it was very hard to acquire. I'd seen the film on YouTube, but then I wanted to actually acquire it properly. Um, so I ordered the German import DVD, which for some reason is the only way you can get it. And like it's English language, but there's a scene at the start and a scene at the end that's spoken in a different language and would have had English subtitles, but doesn't on the German DVD. Um, which involves a scene where the genie reveals he murdered someone, which is just such a weird subplot. You know, it doesn't really go anywhere. I think I've actually seen that movie a long time ago. It's very good with Alan Cumming, Lenny Henry, and Rowan Atkinson. Yeah, it's such a good movie. I like it. It's very good. <laughs> And it was the first time that Richard Curtis and Emma Freud worked together, and the flat was actually filmed in their real life flat, which is nice. Let's save you some money. Um, I'm thinking next year I might do Bernard and the Genie wish by wish over the Christmas season. Oh, yeah. Because most of the guests won't have seen it, so it'll be quite fun. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering at what point Richard Curtis is going to be annoyed that I'm just picking his stuff, at which is point, genuinely pure coincidence. At some point, there's going to be a restraining order of some kind. <laughs> Like, doing this show after About Time is a complete coincidence. Like, I was chatting with Lara, we're going to do Les Mis at some point, and then she said, oh, we should do Love Actually at some point. And then I realised we could do Love Actually day by day, so it would be actually a, a better way to introduce her to podcasting than throwing her into doing minute by minute of a three-hour film. Yeah, it's intense. Um, 
but like doing about time i was chatting with one of our one of the people we had guest on the show and we're now talking about doing episode by episode of vicar of dibley which was a show that richard curtis did which i don't know if you have in the state in uh, canada I've, I've seen some of it uh, not all of it uh he he did write my favorite episode of doctor who yes mine too yeah vincent and the vincent and the doctor uh i do love that I, like it was my favorite episode for years, and then when I started being a fan of Richard Curtis films, I was going through his filmography, and it was like, of course, my favorite writer wrote my favorite Doctor Who episode. Of course, it's <laughs> meant to be. So yeah, we've got this uh, this scene afterwards where it's him in the car giving her a, a drive back, and I like this. So he says in pidgin Portuguese, which roughly translate to uh, "beautiful, uh, beautiful m- m- mountain tree." <laughs> And uh, I thought our border was tree. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, he said, no, right. Silence is golden. As uh, Tremello said, clever guys. Although I think the original version was by Frankie Valli in the Four Seasons. C- great band. And then he starts humming Silence is Golden and then says, oh, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, which I, I like because I, obviously he is trying to fill the silence and he'll still talk to himself yeah. to fill the silence, which I think is is very true. I I think if this scene went on any longer, he'd be putting the radio on or something, because you'd need something. But if we, if we got anything more to say about this whole story before we move on to the prime minister and the president, just that I like you've got the standard, you know, awkwardness of being with somebody that you like and in any language if someone speaks the same language as you it's always awkward to be around them and not knowing what to say but it, it's it's that extra stretch isn't it? it's that one step further that you know that bridge that bridge further um where the person you're talking to actually doesn't understand anything you're saying which um is a blessing but also is funnier for us because we can just see um we can see the self-loathing that is generated. Uh, as oh, I was going to say, it, it, yeah. there, there is a blessing in the fact that he could say absolutely anything and she'd have no idea. Yeah, um, yeah. Although actually we don't learn at this point that she doesn't know any English, do we? Did they say that or is it just implied? Yeah, I think I think we know that she doesn't, yeah. I'm going to go back and change this. This is Aurelia. Uh, uh, she cannot speak French. They don't actually say at any point that she can't speak English. No, I think we don't really... Because they never explicitly say that she doesn't speak English, but I think we, we get that from like the conversation after they've been in the water. Um, it's clear that they don't know what they're saying to each other. Yeah, yeah. which I do quite... I, I quite like that, and I enjoyed that. They avoid two tropes here. One trope is, oh, she's learned, she, known, she knows English all along, which I'm glad they avoided. And the other trope that I'm glad they avoided was, which happens in American movies all the time, because um, they, they she doesn't speak his language, so he just speaks to her louder. Yeah. <laughs> it's good that we don't get a ton of that, yeah, because that would have been a, a go-to. And yeah, I hadn't really thought about that she knows English all along, but that, that is a, a tropey thing. And obviously, Richard Curtis did that... Um, was involved in writing that Mr. Bean sketch, you know, where he's getting undressed in front of the blind man. So that sort of subversion of expectations is a very common thing that Richard Curtis has obviously worked with. Um, May I think that it just like that little exchange, that uh, exchange is so adorable. I don't even care. It is so cute. It is very sweet. Yeah, because like they don't understand each other, but they're still trying. This is one. This is one of the stories that I would be interested to see how it flows as a short film. Yeah. Because it's rather standalone. 
it doesn't even involve Christmas in its story at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just sweet. It was one of them that Richard did say to me he had intended as a full feature film at first. He had that written down as an idea. It was the Colin Firth story and the Hugh Grant story were two things he was planning to make full features out of. Yeah. I would watch both of those, I think. <laughs> mm. I think the Hugh Grant story would possibly work better as a feature because at the moment it's just a very um, toxic work relationship in terms of their their dynamic and balance with him being the most powerful man in Britain and her having to answer, having to do everything he asks. Mm-hmm. Well, as we see a little bit in with, with the scene with the President of the United States, who is clearly using his power to get some tail. Yeah. Which is possibly one of the things which I don't like the whole president exchange we get in a bit, but I think maybe we do need it in order to not find their relationship so toxic. Mm-hmm. We need to see how you how someone could misuse the power. And so I guess, Lara, the president and Hugh Grant's dancing. What do you think? What happens they don't the dance president? together. The president turns up um he ends up i think is is he kissing natalie or he, he ends up very close to natalie he's like touching her hair he's standing very close yeah. to her oh I think. yeah that bit i'm not gonna lie that bit just annoys me because i'm something like that would never happen even in a movie i know it did happen in the movie but that yeah, would just no. never were, happen yeah because they were alone for like 28 seconds <laughs> literally i always forget that billy bob thornton's in this movie oh he's so sleazy oh <laughs> I have a very weird note about Billy Bob Thornton, which I can't quite believe is true. It was commented on in the commentary. I then Googled it. Pretty sure it was just a passing comment that Hugh, joke, Hugh Grant made as a joke. And it turns out it's completely true. <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton has a fear of antique furniture and of pictures of former Prime Minister Benjamin Disraeli's facial hair. I've heard the one about the furniture before. Yeah. And in this scene, he has to go past a picture of Benjamin Disraeli and a lot of antique furniture. <laughs> and apparently, wow. whenever Hugh Grant um, wanted to just be annoying on set, he'd grab the picture of Benjamin Disraeli and hold it up behind the camera just to annoy <laughs> Billy Bob Thornton and really upset well, make him uncomfortable. I, I get the feeling he's um, a truly bizarre human. Yes. Yeah, I haven't seen a ton of stuff with Billy Bob Thornton, but it's always just... I, I'm not quite sure what I think of him. <laughs> yeah he, but in this movie i just because i was making notes when i was watching it i just put wow billy bob is sleazy that's, that's... Yeah. yeah yeah but I, I also put a note that hugh grant reminds me so much of our um our current prime minister justin trudeau kind of young good hair you know <laughs> it just reminds me a lot yeah. of justin trudeau I, I don't know much about his politics but he's certainly nice to look at <laughs> <laughs> Our prime minister was um, was was briefing every single day about during the during well, currently in the COVID crisis, and he would do it outside so that everyone was outside. And there are gifts of him just because he wasn't getting a haircut because all the salons were closed, and he wanted to be like you know regular Canadians who weren't getting their haircuts either. So his hair was getting quite long, and it was there was a breeze, and he was just like raking his fingers through his hair. And there's so many gifts online of him just like slow motion raking his hands through his hair. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's our uh, yeah. Compared to what's going on south of us, yeah, we've got a very good looking prime minister. I think we commented uh, last time that by complete coincidence, the set decoration in one of the scenes with the lamps behind him 
were identical to what the um, what Tony Blair actually had in his office at that time. Well, wow. they just picked some lamps and then checked afterwards, and uh, they picked some lamps and then Tony Blair did some sort of speech on video, and it turned out they had the same lamps, huh. which is just brilliant. So, are you saying ten Downing Street shops at IKEA? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> There's some things the president says where you can very much tell it's a British person writing an American. <laughs> yes, yes. It's almost a... He, he, the president's character is almost a, a caricature of an American president. Yeah, yeah which I think works well because Richard Kurtz can obviously write American characters. There's a token American in every one of his rom-coms, I'm pretty sure. I think it's on purpose. Yeah. Well... I, yeah. I've, 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 yeah, I think it is on purpose how he writes him here. But the line that really stood out as not working at all is excellent. My goodness, that's a pretty little son of a bitch. Did you see those pipes? It just that does not that 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 just doesn't flow at all. Yeah, <laughs> it just it's did just... not sound right. Obviously, a it's not a nice thing for him to say anyway. But b <laughs> the way like the wording, I don't know. It's just. A the, I think it was a, a period where the phrase "son of a bitch" was a very Americanized, very American comment. Yeah, so I think the um, it's written in a deliberately caricaturing way, isn't it? It's deliberately crass, but actually, I, I that's this would be one of the places where I think you know what, um, it is just gratuitous and it is just crass, and it didn't need to, to be said. And actually, you you've already done a, a pretty good job of letting the audience know that this is a sort of hacks idea of what an American president is. We already get that. Um, and you've all you've almost sort of broken the fourth wall um, or, or, or put a fourth wall back up and then knocked it down again. So, yeah, this is what we only moments. needed that brief moment where you could see he was slightly checking her out. We didn't need the line at all. Yeah, we have that. And then we see him with her literally about three minutes from now. And that's all, that's all we need. Yeah. I think it's all part of the ploy to make him uh, such a douche that when uh, during the press conference he uh, he does what he does during the press conference, who Grant, who Grant's character does, that you're like, yeah, get that American president. But I think they were so successful in doing that without, like that whole walk down the stairs with that conversation is just not necessary. It's over the top and it's not necessary. Yeah. It's. I mean, the whole that whole section is deliberately jingoistic and um, sort of hammerly pro Britain, isn't it? It that it is very nudge nudge wink wink. But also, mm. I, I just think that it's um, it's it straw mans the American president basically. So it's it it stops us from celebrating. I think because actually we don't think that's a realistic portrayal of of an American president. So yeah, it's straw man's in for me. Um, so I, I do quite like the press conference. Um, obviously we've said also, it's very quick how he seems to instantly get with Matt, Natalie, which is very concerning. Um, so Hugh Grant's uh, line, main line in the press conference is when, um, when the prime minister, when he says, I love that word relationship it covers all manner of sins, doesn't it? I fear this has become a bad relationship, a relationship based on the president taking exactly what he wants and casually ignoring all those things that really matter to um, to Britain. 
Uh, we may be a small country, but we're a great one too. The country of Shakespeare, Churchill, The Beatles, Sean Connery, Harry Potter, David Beckham's right foot, David Beckham's left foot, come to that. And a friend who bullies is no longer a friend. And since bullies only respond to strength, from now onward, are we prepared to be much stronger? And the president should be prepared for that. I, I, I think it's a, it's a good speech. But actually, when we do consider that he has just essentially damaged the relationship between England and America for one girl, is maybe makes him not quite as good a prime minister as he seems to come across as. Yeah, and I like I like that again because that's all part of Richard Curtis's thought experiment. It, the, the film is is simply about looking at the different offshoots of the word love, whether that ends up being infatuation or lust, or simply you know the desires of the heart in that slightly vague way. What happens when those things are elevated beyond reason, beyond social construct, beyond language barriers? That's what the film's about, isn't it? And and he doesn't. He shows the full range and the full spectrum of, you know, sensual desire, and this is this is this is simply one of them. This is about what does it mean when someone in ultimate power does something for love? Mm. Yeah, I think I was say obviously within the film it flows really well, and it, that that sort of Richard Curtisy way of of. And it's not a criticism to say this of well-off people doing well in life. It's not a criticism to say that that's what his films are. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with that. That is, to an extent, the life that Richard Curtis knows. He is someone who is in a financially stable position, who has got a happy life. So therefore he is writing what he knows and there is nothing wrong with that. He does enough work for those people who aren't so well-off that I think he can get away with that without it being a criticism. And... I think it is a lovely idea to see people at all different stages of life. And there was a deleted scene with like some people in Africa who were struggling with getting with enough money to provide food and stuff and about their love between them that ended up being cut from the film because it didn't flow quite well. But I like the idea of there being one of the most powerful people and some of the most like, you know, the lowest financial situations together. And the one thing that binds them is that they've both experienced love um, there was a line cut from the Prime Minister's speech where he was going to say on the list of things that come from Britain about Catherine Zeta-Jones's breasts, but that was cut. Um, so much, so many breasts in this movie. So I'm going to move on to the phone call that we briefly get, which is actually, I've got the note here to our past comments, leads to the first time we see Alan Rickman and Emma Thompson as a couple. Yeah. And especially that Emma Thompson's character is Hugh Grant's character's sister, which is just a nice little extra bit we have this moment with the dolls um well first we get the mentioning that they're listening to Joni mitchell I, he says i can't believe you still listen to Joni mitchell i love her and true love lasts a lifetime Joni mitchell mitchell's the woman who taught your cold english wife how to feel which is lovely foreshadowing really for the moment we get later on with the cd and he says did she well that's good i must write to her sometime and say thanks um, and we've got the two dolls in a, in a moment, which is the one that looks like a transvestite or the one that looks like a dominatrix. And that is seriously just a Ken doll dressed up in a Barbie outfit. Yeah. Yeah, I thought, like, that That does look very male, <laughs> that doll. I'm very confused yeah, yeah. by those dolls. Have we got anything to say on this before we just go 
into the dance. Um, no. No. Just I, I love how by the end, everyone is so interconnected in ways we didn't even realize at the end of the movie. Yeah. yeah. I think that is what makes it perfect. Um, and so we've got this dance. It's just nice. It's a good scene. It's, there is no reason for it in the film, but I like it. And it's fine. It's almost... I think it's... You're at this point in the film, it's just going, you're allowed to have fun. It's yeah. like, it's the film where we're saying, look, don't take us seriously. And the, and the dancing. Love the dancing. Right. Honestly, I think I use that as dance moves a lot. <laughs> I may or may not have tried to, at home, not with like a camera or anything, to recreate that dance a few days ago. Wow. I was at home alone and I was like, I don't know what to do. I'll see whether I can do the full dance. Oh, I can do it. It's... It's harder, mostly because, like, it cuts. There's cuts. Yeah. And you can't do cuts in real life. Um, so, I don't know. How many how many tweets should I get in order to release a video recreation of this of that dancing? 50. How many, people, how many listeners need to tweet Three. me? 50. Three? <laughs> well, that's me, that's Andy, yeah. and it's Lark. <laughs> I don't have Twitter, unfortunately. Oh well, create an I'm trying to think. Tweet and then delete it. <laughs> okay. I'm trying to. I'm trying to because we, we have no idea how many listeners we're going to get. Um, I'll give it five. If five listeners, it's not a ton. If five listeners tweet me, um, saying that they want this, they want me to do a recreation of Hugh Grant's dance, then it will happen and it will be up on the Move by Minute YouTube panel, YouTube channel. All right, I have a pencil. I'm writing down your Twitter handle. <laughs> Which is at llama underscore bottle zero. I made it when I was like 12. Well, like a llama? Yeah. I love llamas. <laughs> but I mean, I, like, I think um, Hugh Grant's character is on a bit of a, a high still because of what happened at the press conference. And like we've all yeah. been in that place where we've done something that has been great and we've been full of energy. And then like he's also sort of falling for a girl. So he's like, yeah, I'm going to dance. <laughs> yeah. I wonder yeah, how I how inspired it was by um, that Tom Cruise. Um, oh, I, I can't remember the name of the movie. Is it? Um, it's not Cocktail, is it? No, it's um, what's the Risky Business. Yes, Risky yeah, well, one where he slides across the floor in his socks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The weird thing is, they refer to him in, in, on the radio as a a golden oldie for a golden oldie. He's not yeah. old. No. <laughs> He's very young for a prime minister, I think. And I tend to think of golden oldie songs as being from like the '60s as well, not the '80s. <laughs> yeah, maybe it's because I was yeah. raised in the '80s. I don't know. Showing my age. But no, even I, from my age, wouldn't necessarily consider this instantly as a golden oldie. It's an older piece of music, but I, it, it, I wouldn't. That wouldn't be the phrase I'd, I'd refer to it by. So in 2003, it's not been that long. No. Yeah, it's um, not it's not that old at all. So in the Red Nose Day um, re- redo of this scene, it's Hotline Bling that he's dancing to, and that doesn't work quite as well. Um, but I like it. I like his dance. I think it's nice and fun. Um, I, mean, I don't know if there's actually... This is a big iconic scene, but there's not very much to say about it other than it's good. I like it. It's adorable, <laughs> and I was singing along, and I was grinning. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great scene. So, to to conclude this episode, where can the listeners find both of you on social media? If you want to be found on social media. 
You can find me at Andy Kind Comedy on any of the uh, social medias. Indeed. I can, I, I can confirm that one. <laughs> um, I'm, I mean, I'm on Twitter, and I, I, I'm so infrequently on Twitter that I'm not even sure I know my handle, so... <laughs> And I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not uh, uh, an award-winning comedian like Andy or a writer like Andy. So here I am, Scottish-born Canadian. <laughs> there we go. And the listeners can find Lara on Instagram at... Let me find this. I should have made note. They can find her on Instagram at Collier underscore official. And they can find her on Facebook at Lara Collier Music and her song Moving On is on iTunes, Spotify, all of that stuff. And I think there's a couple of music videos I directed for her that come up on YouTube when you search for them, so they can find that there. I'm on Twitter at Llama underscore Bottle Zero, Instagram The Ginger Luke, Facebook Luke Allen Film. All podcasts, radio appearances, newspaper articles, short films, anything I'm remotely involved in is over at LukeAllen.co.uk. And this show is on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Christmas Act Pod. Uh, they can find us on IMDb. And uh, we'll be back on the Friday, the 11th of December, as um, Jamie and Aurelia have breakfast and the pages fall in the lake. And uh, Kira Knightley finish, visits Andrew Lincoln to look at the video. So we're in for a good episode on Friday. Thanks so much for listening, everyone, and goodbye. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Bye. Christmas Actually theme is performed by Ethan O'Mahony and is a cover of God Only Knows by the Beach Boys. Christmas Actually is produced by Bottolo Productions and is distributed by Lemming Drops Studio. For more podcasts and blogs, visit lemmingdrops.com. Thank you.